This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, how do you make the best cup of coffee with science and maybe some good people? Christopher H. Hendon, computational chemist and international expert on the science of coffee, tells us how chemistry can unlock the perfect cup of joe and how you can make amazing coffee at home. It doesn't actually take technology. A space rock is being studied in the University of Alberta and has minerals humans have never seen before. Andrew C. Ferrer is back with weird science of space rocks and how the James Webb Telescope can also take nice pictures of other planets and help us predict the weather there. Plus, are you okay with cows and more on the Shift Daily Podcast? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with cows? Love the cows. Love the cows. Cows are cool. Like, you know, before they're food, they're cool animals. You know, they're just chill. Uh, cute. And milk is great. Beef is great. It's just a great contributor to our existence. Thank you, cows, for being cows. Yeah, they're, they're good. My biggest memory of cows, though, is driving through the dairy fields of western New York. And every time there was a cow, even when I was like four, my mom would be like, look at the cows. <laughs> look at the cows. So, yeah, every time I go by a bunch of cows, I say that now, no matter what. It's oh, good. I love- me. <laughs> look at the cows, everyone. Herd of cows has been causing a massive headache in Quebec. Uh, they have caused thousands of dollars damage, and Quebec farmers have been unable to herd more than 30 runaway cows since they first escaped St. Barnaby Farm in July. The farmers have taken some extreme measures to try to resolve the situation. They are out there somewhere. The forests around the village of Saint-Sever, Quebec, are home, at least for now, to a troop of runaway cows, fugitives from Pierre Lapointe's farm. Lapointe says the story started on a stormy night in late July. Some of his cows were scared by thunder and lightning and knocked down a fence. 32 escaped, although that's a number that's growing. Lapointe says the cows were almost all pregnant and some are having babies in the wild, two or three so far. Now, the cows seem to spend their days in the forest, basically hiding and venture out at night. They are a problem. The farmer who snapped these photos of the runaways says they've trampled his fields and cost him crops. One was even hit by a car. Local farms are now suing the cow's owner. They've done tens of thousands of dollars of damage, and as the weather's changed, they've started eating livestock feed at farms. This new hunting camera's made for deer. It's looking for cows. Just this past weekend, this whole area was set up sort of like a corral and several of the animals were driven almost into it. They didn't quite make it in. They escaped again and they were basically spooked. They haven't been back here since. There have been other attempts to catch the cows. A group of actual cowboys from a Western festival came close to getting them. The village's director general says the cows were corralled and moving, but got away in a tall cornfield. The hope now is for La Pointe's cows to be captured with traps. Feed stations are being set up. They put their head in to eat, but can't get their head out. There is, however, still the question of how to get them back to La Pointe's barn. They're becoming more and more wild and stronger. It's not just a matter of pulling them with a rope. So here's the thing. There, the way it works in broadcast newsland is they do assignments. And every day at the start of the day, reporters will get assignments. And so you know at some point somebody actually had to say, hey, by the way, you need to go talk about wild cows causing trouble. And that's your work day today. I think that's a wicked gig. It's a great day. And it's like they've caused some serious damage. And these are they're becoming super cows. Super cows. Super cows. Yeah. Mike Armstrong, by the way, from Global does a great job. Um, the cows are so strong that farmers could not wrangle them or pull them at all. The story has gained international attention for obvious reasons. Um, we will keep you up to date on this moving story. Oh, oh, oh thank you. Oh, yeah. oh thank I, you. I, I'd be no good at wrangling them because I'd just be like, look at the cows. 
<laughs> it's, it's engraved in your brain now. Can't get it. Out. Are you okay with monks? Monks. I appreciate what a monk can do. I find I, I've actually like Buddhism is a really interesting religion to me. Actually, I'd love mm-hmm. to study it and kind of just that that way of perceiving life and afterlife and all that. I think I, I see the appeal, and I'd love to go see one of the temples like up in Nepal or uh, Tibet. That would be, I think that'd be an incredible experience. If you really want to think about Buddhism, you should just sit and think about it. (laughs) That's probably what they would tell me to do too. (laughs) Well, actually they tell you to stop thinking about it, Um, which is the funny part. There is the, um, the temple. uh, There's a temple in Hawaii. Actually speaking, talking about Hawaii, there's a beautiful uh, uh, temple, Buddhist temple in Hawaii. It's absolutely worth it to go to. Like the most one of the most they got like black swans and the big gong oh, wow. thing you can ring with the log and it's cool. BK, what yeah. are your thoughts? Well, I envy. I sort of envy the Eastern religions. I think they uh, onto something there with looking inward instead of projecting everything outward. Um, yeah. But the blame, yeah, <laughs> guilt and shame and all that lovely <laughs> stuff. <laughs> You're a sinner. Um, but monks. Oh, I envy monks uh, taking a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. I couldn't. I couldn't. I, the obedience would be the hardest one for me. I, <laughs> I love that. Okay, so here's the thing. Being a monk, I've read, is difficult. And even monks say that most of the time when they're meditating, they're still thinking. And they, they that's a constant struggle, even for the experts, the pros, if you will. They still struggle with letting their mind wander and all of the things that we would go through if we're learning how to meditate. Well, I don't know if you can get fired from being a monk, but it turns out you can get fired from being a monk. There's a group of monks in Thailand that are now out of a job. And it's not because they lost their way to their temple or their faith in Buddha or any of those things. They lost their job. Because they tested positive for meth. Oh dear! Cool. That's now, a I didn't know trip. mandatory drug testing was a thing in the monk community. <laughs> Suppose so. Four monks, including an abbot at a temple in Thailand, tested positive for methamphetamine on Monday. Officials told news outlets that monks have been sent to a health clinic to undergo drug rehabilitation. According to the UN, Thailand is a major transit country for methamphetamine flooding in from Myanmar's troubled Shan state via Laos. On the street, meth pills are called Yaba. <laughs> Yabadoo. And they sell for less than 50 cents. 50 cents? So, Holy. Cheap and easy. Yeah. Wow. That is some struggling in meditation. Could you, could you imagine like just being in the moment and at peace with the universe and then suddenly the thought comes up like, I should try some meth. Yeah, where right? does that? Yeah, where does that come get from? Crossed? Yeah, I, I watch Breaking Bad. I, I don't think the meth high is a very peaceful high. So I like they weren't looking for that yeah. when they were taking meth. They were maybe they just got bored. Well, Fifty cents, which I is mean, sad. That, I feel, I'm not an expert, that, but that can't be high quality stuff. No, I imagine it is not the <laughs> it's not the Walter White blue <laughs> clear. Oh, meth the blue stuff. glass. Yeah, we're not talking about blue the, glass here. Yeah, no, we sound like experts. Um, anyway, uh, I hope they're okay. And, yeah, um, that, that's gotta be difficult because I, I would imagine for somebody who's in recovery, and I, I don't mean this as a joke, but when you're in recovery, you would fill your life with new creative things to do, right? Like if you say drugs was a thing, maybe you take up fitness or maybe you take up art or some sort of outlet that allows you to have some function to escape cravings and all that stuff. But if you're a monk, and you're dealing with addiction. Your job is to sit there and be with addiction. Like that has got to be impossible. Like, what do you do after that? I mean, I don't know how you put that on your resume. It's weird. Are oh, actually, you know what? Let's not do that. Let's do um, completely out of context. Uh, this next story uh, for no reason. That they may take our lives. Oh, 
Okay, so are you, are you... That's a typo. Okay. Are you okay with... That's a typo. Scotland. I'm not familiar with Scotland. I know. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I thought you'd be putting the typo in my story about Scotland. <laughs> Ryan's an O'Donnell, so if anybody's going to yeah. spell Scotland wrong, it's probably the well, Irish it's, guy. It's the Celtic brothers. Scotland yeah. is Ireland. Yeah. We are, we're supposed to hate the British. Uh, yeah. Be rebellious little scoundrels. Yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. like, that's our, that's our MO. Yeah. Um, huh? Yeah. Are you okay with Scotland? I want to go to Scotland so bad. I think it's like it's Ireland's number one, and Scotland is number two. I just I have this like gut feeling that I, I need to live there. I don't know why. Maybe it's the history and all that, but it's just I like the rain. I like the cloudy weather, the rolling hills. It just seems like a pretty sweet place to live. Honestly, hmm. you do like a good sweater. I love a sweater. Love a good sweater. <laughs> Any opportunity to wear a sweater, I will take. BK? Yeah, I like Scotland. Um, there's a lot of good bands that come out of Scotland, to be honest. Mm. You know? Mm. I don't like them. You know, big country with their mm. hit in a big country. Although in Scotland's a country. not a big country, so I don't know where yeah. that came from. Mm-hmm. But they've got the bagpipes in it. Yeah. France Lots Ferdinand. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. another Scottish band. Kind of like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Scotland, Scottish? Yeah. France Ferdinand is Scottish. Really? Yeah. I had no yeah. idea. Huh. Scotland, uh, yeah, I like Scotland. It's rocking. All right. Scotland is famous for its rolling hills, amazing accent, whiskey, castles, and so much more. A country with such a rich history, it needs a good slogan to market itself to the world. And in 2007, they made the bold choice. <laughs> uh, sorry. Wow. You think Ryan, it's on my anniversary and I'm not going to give you a typo script? Come on. Well, it's not Come that. On. It's Ryan's anniversary. And, and the irony is is that he wrote down the bold choice, and it was the only thing that wasn't bold. Um, it was all in the little letters, and that made me laugh. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's why. <laughs> yeah. In 2007, Scotland made the bold choice to change their slogan from points of entry to welcome to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird that they do that. After that, the country paid over 125,000 pounds to pay for the awareness campaign, signs, and advertising to let the public know about the change. Um, luckily, they spent almost no money on the name itself. They literally changed, like, their slogan was points of entry. That's, yeah. And then changed they changed it, it to, welcome to welcome Scotland. to Scotland. But you know what? Of all the places in the world that doesn't need an explanation, I feel like that's one of them. Yeah. Scotland, It'd be you like know what Egypt. you're, you're going to get. Yep. What does Egypt need for, uh, uh, like, some sort of marketing pitch? Dude, it's flipping Egypt. Like, that's it. That's the sign. It's Egypt. That's all you need. <laughs> Canada. Big cold. Welcome. Oh, God. Is it ever cold? This is the Shift Podcast. I had the most absolute worst cup of coffee this week. And that's, it's true. It legitimately was the worst. And I'm not going to throw that company under the bus. I mean, I have no problem doing it from time to time, but major coffee chain in Canada, terrible cup of coffee. I've met some coffee people. I've met some coffee people that are roasters. I've met some coffee people that own coffee shops. And we drive through a coffee shop We blast through, we're like, get my coffee right. We freak out if they get it wrong, which is really silly, really, when you think about it. It's fast food. And then we drive through, and then we just take it for granted that our coffee is going to be perfect all day, every day. There is a a myriad of science and inventory and logistics that goes behind that really crappy cup of coffee I had. So imagine if we could celebrate the good coffee. My guest right now, his name is uh, Chris, Christopher H. Hendon, Assistant Professor, Computational Materials, Chemistry at University of Oregon, and coffee. Chris, how do we go chemist to coffee? What is this? How does this work? Yeah, well, first of all, nice to speak with you. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Um, yeah, when I was a graduate student, I was drinking a lot of coffee. I think it's one of the sort of the requirements to be a graduate student in chemistry. Survival and, method, uh, maybe. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and uh, I was I was frequenting a cafe near my my university back in England, and it turns out this was one of these cafes that competes to make the best cup of coffee in the world. And when you get into that sort of uh, realm of coffee, these people think very scientifically about these problems that, you know, the bad cup of coffee you're talking about, that is far too prevalent. And so I realized there's a market and there's also a scientific interest here. Uh, and that sort of started the process of me being interested in the science of coffee and why it goes wrong. Yeah, it does seem to go really, really wrong. I don't even know where to start here, Chris, because my curiosity goes into all of these facets. So I'm going to throw a bunch of balls at you here and you can bat the first one that that lands with you. Okay. First of all, terrible coffee. Uh, are we are we so accustomed to terrible coffee that we don't get good coffee or we don't recognize good coffee anymore? Yeah, so this is an interesting question because... Um, one of the things in science is there's usually a, a right answer or at least a answer that's informed by data to mm -hmm. lead us down a certain path. Why when it comes to be accurate <laughs> yeah. or something, right? Right, right. But when it comes to preference of coffee, like, for example, you may prefer one um, chain producer of coffee and someone else might like another one. Um, both are valid and both are correct. And then, of course, one of the things we try and not do is make an objective statement about what is better or what is worse. But we can go a little deeper than that from a scientific perspective and say one of these coffees features more acid. And if you don't like acid, then uh, you very well may not like the one that features more of it. And so these are sort of the, the directions we go with. But I, I can tell you that there is there are some commonalities in bad cups of coffee, independent of your your preference. Right. Mm. So, so one of the challenges here is that you start out with this brown, dry, massive material and you're using water to extract from it. And of course, not all of it dissolves because you're not brewing instant coffee. Generally, you're brewing, you know, ground coffee. And as a result, there's about 80% of the mass left over not dissolved in the cup. So one of the challenges is you might think from an economic perspective, if I just use a little less coffee and pour water over it, I'm going to, in principle, extract more from that coffee. I'll, I'll save some money. Yeah. But the problem with that is, is now you're starting to extract molecules, flavors that the roaster never intended you to extract. So by you using less coffee, you end up getting flavors out of that coffee that was not supposed to be there. Oh, really? Now, yeah, yeah. So we call that the brew ratio, which is the mass of coffee to the mass of water. Now, a lot of people don't actually weigh it. You know, you, I know, for example, in my lab, of course, we do. But my in my house with my father, when I was younger, he would just use a a uh, heaped tablespoon or something mm -hmm. like that's this. what i do i'm guilty yeah. right 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 and, and in fact that's actually very good that's a very good way to get the same mass of coffee each time and then you'd have your way you'd pour water on it each time and you'd, you'd arrive at a brew ratio that you like mm -hmm. um the thing is that to get a terrible cup of coffee is when someone diverts away from the brew ratio that you you tend to like mm -hmm. um that's that's a surefire way to get a cup of coffee that does not taste to your liking uh, so even if we, let's say we both use the exact same beans the, or the same grounds from Tim Hortons, for example, and I brew it up and you brew it up and I use a little less coffee than you, you're going to get more burnt flavors in my cup than you will in your cup. And that may be to your liking. Okay. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely gonna be different. Okay. So that makes sense. That leads me to my next question then, which would be the quality of the coffee supply. Now, inventory to me seems to be everything. And we've heard these anecdotes, if you will, these gossip stories about one big chain buying out another chain supplier, their inventory. I'm assuming where the beans come from matters, the kind of bean, the breed of bean, the way they're farmed, the way they're dried, the way they're cooked. Are they burnt? Are they too bad? Why is it oily sometimes? Um, yeah. You know, all of these things, I imagine would matter because there was a time for me when tim hortons was the best cup of coffee sure M mcdonald's comes along now to me mcdonald's has the best cup of coffee sure and i don't go back to the other one anymore maybe it's the acid thing like you're talking about i don't know Could be. yeah but are they are, are are they literally fighting for the same inventory or are they creating their own inventory how does that work well, yeah so the, the coffee supply chain is quite complex but fundamentally what's happening is a, a producing country grows coffee and at some point, that coffee needs to be exported from that country, imported to America, and then it's going to be turned from green coffee to brown coffee by a roaster. And then at that point, we're going to then sell it to a shop and they're going to grind it up and brew it. So 
you touched on a variety of different parts of that supply chain, but we'll start with the agricultural side first, is that the number one producing country in the world for coffee is Brazil by a long shot. They can basically manufacture as much or grow as much coffee as we need. So if the world needs more coffee, Brazil is capable of doing so. So it's not so much that, you know, one big coffee uh, chain in America buys out the supplier of another coffee chain in America, for example. That does happen. Okay, that does happen. But at the sort of the commodity level, so mass production level, it's not such a big deal. Of course, it becomes a bigger problem if you start buying out the higher quality crops. Right. Because there's only a finite number of crops that actually meet certain criteria of being, you know, featuring the mouthfeel and the lack of dirtiness and all the things we care about in coffee. And, and so, you know, at some point, yeah, you, you offer a better price to a farmer. They're going to take more money, of course. And that's how you end up with, uh, you know, allegiances shifting from one, you know, one uh, distribution to another distribution. But even then, you touched on sort of one of the most important things in coffee is by far the most valuable component of the coffee supply chain is the quality of the green bean. And you can do all this other fancy stuff to it down the, down the chain. You can use a fancy grinder. You can brew it a fancy way, whatever. But if the quality of the green is not good, you're going to end up with a you know variable cup of coffee at the end. And so, indeed, when you roast the coffee, you are making a decision about how you're going to access those flavors. You know, if you roast it light, you don't get the oil developing. You roast it dark. You get the oil developing uh, and they're going to have different flavor profiles. But objectively, if you start out with a good quality green bean, if you, you then roast it light, you're going to get a good light roast. If you roast it dark, you're going to get a tasty dark roast because you used a good green bean in the first place. Right. It's kind of like it's kind of like having a Wagyu steak. Right. You get this Wagyu beef. And at the end of the day, you may be one of these people who likes it extremely rare. Oh, that makes it'll sense. be great. Yeah. And you may also be a person who likes it well done. And I guarantee you that Wagyu beef well done is still going to taste really good if you like it well done. So it's sort of that analogy. It's like you start with a high quality product in, you get a good version of it out. Yeah. One person, you put that Wagyu beef into a stew and someone might shake their head, but it could possibly because it's well done, but still could be the best stew ever, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So okay. Okay, that makes sense. we try and stay away from saying someone's right or wrong in their preference, right? Oh, I'm very right. Don't worry. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I like well, my besides coffee. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, so you mentioned dark roast. Then let me ask you this about the chemistry of dark roast. Yeah. I was told by a uh, roaster that dark roast is basically a way to that many roasters will cook the rancid beans that are no good anymore because they can overcook them dark and then that way they save the money and so much so that it, he said to me it's safe to assume that most commercial places where you're buying dark roast beans they've been overcooked because they were no good for any other roasting would that right. be true or false yeah so this is interesting so um so there is definitely some validity to that statement wow so the idea is that that some there are some molecules that are generated in green coffee that we don't like that much and when we are choosing to purchase the green coffee you're going to do a quality control and assess whether those molecules are there in high high you know if they're prevalent in a crop and if they are, then it's hard to invest a ton of money in it because when you roast it and you taste it, it's not going to taste good. Almost like corked wine, if you like, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, is that most of the time, we're not buying crops that are defective. But those defective crops don't get thrown in the trash. They still get used. And you can burn away the defect at higher, at longer development time as you roast darker, if you yeah. like. Okay. Now, now it, it would be improper to say that all dark roasts are the lower quality product that we've just roasted. So we've hidden the problem, right? Because in, in, in actuality, you can roast dark and you destroy the molecule that is the problem. But that doesn't change the fact that you still started, even though that molecule was present in the green bean, therefore it was low quality, that green bean itself was also just probably low quality. And so even though you burn off that one molecule, you're still working with something that's pretty inferior to the upper quality. So what I'm really trying to say is, if you start out with a bad green bean, you roast it dark, you're going to get a bad quality product, even if it had the defect burned away. And so to, to some extent, people, it is true they were hiding, people have hidden bad quality coffee behind dark roasts. But there are plenty of dark roasts that are, are high quality beans roasted dark. Yeah. They just, 
the, it's the, the thing is, is that they, they're expensive, right? It, it, you've put in a, more energy to roast a bean dark than you do light. Like you've used physically more gas and you've cooked it longer and you bought the same quality green bean as you had to roast it light. And so right now the inclination for the community is to drink lighter coffee. So, you know, that's where we're at. So this is, this is where it gets me. I'm a filthy capitalist. Mm-hmm. All right. I have no problem admitting that I like, you know, to make money and do things that, that generate profits in my life. And so, uh, Chris Hendon, you're a chemist. Coffee is your thing. Mm-hmm. What you just said to me is that if I can take a high quality bean, spend more money, roast it darker and get a higher a really beautiful dark roast coffee that's mm-hmm. going to be a lower margin item for me but if i can buy really crappy beans and i can overcook them and i can buy the beans at a discount then mm-hmm. i can put lipstick on a pig mm-hmm. and sell it as a beautiful dark roast when it's actually not and i can mask it that way and people will think they're getting a beautiful dark roast because of the fact that we charge more for dark roast there's an there's an element to that but i think there's sort of like a there's an equalizer in this is that the people who end up spending the amount of money that we're talking about to buy the high quality green bean in the first place are already people that are looking for the nuanced flavor that is still available in the light roast coffee. So I think that the the, the point is, is that, yeah, sure. You could take a, a green bean that is high quality and roast it dark and it would be worth, I don't know, let's say $25 a bag. Okay. And at that point, you're going to get some of the sort of, uh, pretentious tasters saying, I would like to enjoy that. It's going to taste like s'mores and uh, all these darker flavors that we're used to tasting. And they're going to pay $25 a bag. But the average dark roast consumer does not pay $25 a bag for dark roast coffee. And so, you know, they may pay half that. You may pay $12 a bag for a conventional dark roast. And so, indeed, while well, you're right, you could, in principle, pretend it's lipstick on a pig. There's actually not really a market for expensive dark roast coffee because it's just not that. There's not that many people prepared to pay that much. I get it. Okay. No, I get it. Okay. So yeah. So I'm still, it's still leading me to help me here. It, it, it's still leading me down the path that buying cheap beans and roasting them longer and calling it dark roast coffee is a really great way to make a larger margin because a good quality bean, you're going to get all the flavors in a light roast anyway. So to yeah. me, it still kind of takes me back to that place where dark roast is just a great opportunity to cook the extras at a higher margin and, and market it as a great experience. Yeah, and indeed. I, I mean, this is the dark roast is still what all the chain companies use, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like without a doubt, that's a hundred percent true. Um, and you know, there is definitely margins to be had there, like big margins. I mean, you make a ton of money when you buy a, you know, let's say a cheaper coffee. It doesn't necessarily have to be defective, but cheaper. Mm-hmm. You roast it dark, and you sell. You can, you know, you sell it for a ton of money. I don't even know what the going rate at these, you know, conventional stores is now for like a 12 ounce cup of coffee, yeah. but it's, it's too it's much. expensive. It's getting expensive. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. So the, I, we've talked about the inventory. We've talked about all these different ones. I know that in Hawaii, Hawaii had a lot of problems because they, there was a lot of companies saying that there was Hawaiian bean coffee. Mm-hmm. And so they put in a, a local law that said in order to mar- kind of like Irish whiskey, Irish whiskey has to be brewed in Ireland, right? Uh, bourbon yeah. has to be brewed in Kentucky, um, all those kinds of things, right? And um, so little rules that were there around the coffee. This coffee had to have 10% of a Hawaiian bean. It could be supplemented with beans from elsewhere, but at least had, I believe it was 10. It was uh, it's from memory, so forgive me if it's not quite right. But there was a minimum of the local bean in that. Do we see that hybrid of people blending from different places? Cause that kind of takes me back to the world of liquor and beer, uh, whiskey, where you use a, a Cabernet Sauvignon barrel to, yeah. um, you know, to, to create your Irish whiskey and all these things while, while you're sit, letting it sit. So all of those things are happening. Is that happening in coffee too? Yeah. So mo- <laughs> there's been a, a sort of a, a recent um, revisiting of counterfeit coffee, which yeah. is a weird thing to think about, but um most of uh, blending okay let's just be clear blending happens all the time in coffee but blending is usually done after it's roasted so you take two different coffees where you definitely know where they're from you roast them you know separately and then you put them together at the end to make a flavor profile of a conventional blend right Mm -hmm. um what you're talking about is supplementing a green crop with other beans that are also green to basically 
create a bag of green coffee of which some of it is in Hawaii's case, Hawaiian, Mm -hmm. and the rest of it may not be Hawaiian. That's a very obscure thing to think about because it's, you know, these crops generally don't gain value by diluting them with other material, right? Mm -hmm. It's just generally not a thing that happens. Um, But Hawaii is a particularly unique example because Hawaiian coffee is very expensive. And the, and the reason it's expensive is because America has a minimum wage. And so we pay the farmers a minimum wage in Hawaii. And therefore, we, you know, that's much more money per person per day than you'd pay a Colombian farmer, for example, or someone from El Salvador. Right. Now, the inequity and the inequality there is bad. But the, the point is, is that there is a motivation for people to say things are Hawaiian to fetch a higher price point simply because Hawaiian coffee is expensive by definition. Right. So I'll give you another example. The the coffee that goes through the animal and gets pooped out, the civet coffee or Kopi Luai. Yeah, that's a crazy Probably. story. I mean, let's yeah. actually reset that for those who don't know. There are there are co- there are beans that are taken after they've been cycled through the digestive cycle of an animal. And it's this high end, fancy, fancy thing. Right. Right. And it turns out that something like 75 percent of it is not it is counterfeit. It's, it didn't go through an animal. Wow. Yeah. So, and, but the thing is, how do you prove it? Number one, oh, that's uh, gross. really, it's an analytical. Don't want to be that guy. Yeah. That's a bad job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like, wait, this didn't come out of a, a civet. No. And, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> oh God. Uh, no. No. Not. Not that. So. So. But it's an interesting problem because this idea of counterfeiting a crop, right? That. That is. Um, something that is definitely a niche market, uh, but a valuable market. And yet again, the equalizer here is simple. As it turns out that the market for pooped out coffee is actually not as big as you'd think. I mean, it's not, it's, it is, I wouldn't even say a fraction of a percent of the market for just normal Brazilian coffee. I find that encouraging, actually. I do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. Humans will continue to make, on average, reasonable decisions. So, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, but also the market for Hawaiian coffee is intrinsically small because Hawaii just simply does not produce enough coffee to grow the market. It's a good so, touristy thing to buy when you're leaving, you know? Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they, they sure know how to charge you for it. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it's expensive yeah. when you go in the stores and it usually comes in a ba- like three little bags and one big bag. And and uh, it's in every every convenience store everywhere, all of the ABC stores. Boy, you can find it anywhere. It does make you wonder how long it's been sitting there, though, right? Because it it's does. like coffee does degas and it's like, eh. Yeah, if they roast that over a, you know, like let's say even six weeks, I would say that stuff's not really worth buying anymore. It does make you wonder how long it's been sitting there, though, right? Because it's like coffee does degas, and it's like, eh. yeah, if they roast that over a, you know, like let's say even six weeks, I would say that stuff's not really worth buying anymore. Yeah, see, that's wild. There are so many layers to this, isn't it, Chris? Like, there's th- well, okay, so if you could pick the top couple that come to mind of things we should consider when buying coffee that really actually have an impact like you talked about six weeks old whatever after it's been roasted yeah, and yeah, blended yeah. um what, what what kind of things should we when we're looking at these places should we consider yeah so yeah it's uh this is really tricky because everyone who's listening to this is going to be scattered geographically right so we all have different accessibility to coffee beans number one but we also brew it up in different ways with different local water and so forth so there's a lot of variables that go into this but I think the most important thing, if you're just going to narrow down on coffee quality and the way you purchase coffee, the most valuable thing you can do is to be obtaining coffee that is uh, it, you, where you know what has happened along the supply chain. And so often that is they call it single origin coffee. They may even tell you the name of the farmer. And that all sounds um, like a nice story. And sometimes people get distracted and say they're just paying for the story. But that's not really what all those pieces of information are telling you. They're telling you that we actually know where that coffee came from. It's the equivalent of me saying, oh, that is that is a bottle of miscellaneous red wine versus that is a bottle of 1988 Chateau de Pop. They're very different things. Very good choice, right? by the way. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> so Very good choice. So that'd be like, that's like a fish burger versus a salmon burger, right? Exactly. And it's, it's. So, so that's a good start. Is if there's some information about like what the coffee actually is, that is already a good indication, independent of how they roasted it or any of that stuff, any of the preferential stuff, where you just may like one thing over another. If they at least 
tell you something about the coffee. It means they've taken the time to actually source a coffee that aligns with what they wanted to purchase. So that, you know, that's usually a, that's usually a good start. I like that. Okay, cool. So here we go. This is, uh, Chris is actually not a coffee guy. He's just a coffee guy who was a chemist and became a coffee guy. Um, mm -hmm. Fascinating things here, Chris. Now, um, I feel like we have a little bit of Breaking Bad going on here. And because um, there was this this moment in Breaking Bad where Gail Boddicker, um, he's a chemist and he starts making coffee and he talks about the temperatures and the everything else and all the perfect that he does. He does it in a meth lab. I'm assuming that you don't um, mm -hmm. that. But I mean, when you make your coffee, you got is, is that the way we're doing it? Is the coffee pot part of the problem? Yeah. So the it's it's. More often than not, when you speak to people who drink a lot of coffee but don't work in either the industry or in the science of coffee, you very readily hook on to the uh, the idea that it is the brew um, equipment that is, of course, going to impact the outcome. So you can spend any amount of money on a grinder and you can also buy some brewing apparatus that makes you feel like you're doing something sophisticated, right? Very good. Um, so I, I usually tell people this is that that really, uh, the, of course, the brewing matters, of course. Right. But the most important part, if you were to focus at the end of the line at the brewer or the grinder or whatever, by far, the most important thing equipment wise is going to be your grinder um, by a long shot. And, then, yeah. and that's because if you create a, a distribution of small dust and that dust ranges from bean sizes like whole beans that were never fractured all the way down to microscopic dust there's a good chance that you'd say the dust and the bean have been extracted differently because they are really really different in size so you really just want a grinder that does a good job of making the particles more or less the same size okay whatever size you determine that to be for your brew method um but the number one thing which people overlook more often than not at the point of consumption is the water and it's not the it's not the fancy machine or whatever, but it's the it's the minerals in the water that is the that changes that changes the flavor profile. Like hard water, soft water, even all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So so hard water is if you like acid in coffee, hard water does not give you that. Hard water wipes out acid in coffee. So hard water hard water is just full of um, carbonate, which you've probably seen if you're in a hard water location. There's that white material that develops on your shower, right? So that, that white material, when it reacts with coffee acids, neutralizes the coffee acids through exactly the same reaction as to how you remove the white material from your shower. You get vinegar, you rub it, the white stuff goes away, and so does the vinegar, right? And so that's what's happening inside your cup of coffee. So if you like acid, you don't you want to use softer water, and so that's really important. Um, and I think one of the problems is, is that you may be sitting at home right now thinking, okay, we're, what... I have hard water, what am I going to do? And unfortunately, the answer is you're either going to have to do some really fancy filtration or you're going to have to buy soft water. Uh, and that is that is as, if not more, annoying than the idea of having to buy a fancy grinder. Mm -hmm. I love it. That's See, that this is fascinating stuff to me. I'll tell you what I do because i got to give credit to Handy Eddie, who's one of our guests here on The Shift, is uh, I went and bought a dumb coffee pot. I bought the dumbest coffee pot I could, just an on-off uh -huh. switch only. And then this is on his advice. And so it's just a drip coffee, carafe, yeah. 12 cup measure thing. Um, and it's on a smart plug. So the cool part is, is that when I wake up, because I wake up at a different time every day, so I don't preset my clock. There's no clock on that coffee pot. Mm -hmm. On my app, on my home kit, on my iPhone, I just coffee pot on and click. And by the time I'm downstairs, it's just finished brewing. And uh, it's, it, that's a beautiful way to do it. I got to tell you, it's ready right now. There, that is smart. That's smarter than what I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> what I do is exactly the same thing, except for I'm the one who has to turn it on and off. So that's a good one. Go get a smart club uh, plug. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's right. gonna I need a smart plug. Is what I need. Yeah. Okay, so you go to school internationally, I might add, to become uh -huh. a chemist. And so, how did you slide this by your folks and just say, "Hey, by the way, I'm going to go be a chemist in another country, and I get to study all that." Oh yeah. yeah, that's great, boy. What kind of job are you gonna get? Oh, I'm gonna be a coffee expert. Like, how did you make that happen? Because most parents would be like, "Okay, that's enough. <laughs> no more education yeah. for you." Yeah, it's funny because you know, it's I definitely did not know that I would end up in, in doing my work in coffee in addition to the computational materials chemistry. Right? That's um, 
sometimes with these things you get trained up in one area and then while you get so good in one area you realize you might be able to apply your skills to another completely different discipline that has some overlap right uh and so in this case uh, you know at some point i took a liking to the coffee thing and i didn't really know even after i started working in it that it would become a feature of what i actually study at a professional level but it didn't it wasn't impeded by my parents because my my mom is from Australia, from Melbourne, which is a big time coffee city. And so the idea that I'd be working in coffee actually overlapped with her interest just in general. And so, you know, it, it definitely it definitely was viewed favorably within the family. Um, the <laughs> Selfishly, more, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you got to get up first, Chris, in the morning. OK, your job, get up early. You got to get a coffee for everybody. That's right. That's, you know, that is the life I now live too. That's what my wife says. She's, yeah. <laughs> well, see, see upstairs in a little bit, right? Uh, the, <laughs> so, so, yeah, but the, the real, the real, um, the real difficulty actually was not convincing my family or wife or any of any of those people, but actually convincing the people I work with, that my, my colleagues, my peers, other professors in chemistry, that being interested in coffee extends beyond um, you know, this is good coffee. That is bad coffee. Like it extends beyond just like being a cork sniffer. It's it's not about uh, having a superior palate, for example. Mm. So, and once we once we overcame that barrier, it was it was very um, readily embraced in in certainly in this department, yeah, in, at University of Oregon, because they they clearly embraced the idea of doing chemistry uh, in an unusual way. And I, that is definitely what we're doing. And that's cool, man. That's, that's really cool. And I, you know, with STEM being so, now chemistry with Melanie is so close to me and, and uh, so also far out of my lane. Um, just if you know somebody, a young person who's looking for a career, um, look into STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, and chemistry being a part of, of, of the STEM world, Look what chemistry can do. Chemistry isn't just making Mr. Clean or plastics or whatever. I mean, this chemistry, I mean, sure, if that's your jam, then go for it. But the chemistry is so much more. And this is in people's lives every day. You want to do something that really affects people's lives. I mean, this is a, an absolute great way to do this. Chris uh, Hendon is our guest here. And Chris, one last question. You and I uh, were hanging out. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Mainstream coffee joints close by. Is, I don't want to bang on all of the bad ones, but is there one that you would recommend? I realize there's no right or wrong, as you've been clear, but that you would say, let's go here. These guys do a good job. Who can we acknowledge? Yeah. So are we, uh, which uh, which country are we in? Well, we could be, I guess, somewhere in North America, Canada, maybe the States. Okay. I mean, let's, let's do Canada because, I mean, how we're broadcasting mostly in Canada. So let's start there. Yeah. So, okay. So, um mainstream in my mind are these mass producers the ones that have shops on every corner and you know it's very easy then to point to a variety of mainstream producers that do a very um, consistent job so for example we mentioned tim hortons yep. mcdonald's has started to up the game yep. uh there's duncan if you're on the far east i guess that's ventured into toronto area yeah, a little uh, bit mostly in the states yeah yep. yeah yeah mostly in the states right Star but actually yeah, but you know, I I think we could do a little better than that. So, like for example, there are some world leading coffee companies in Canada. Um, they're sort of on the smaller side, but they definitely have lots of, lots of cafes. So it's not like you wouldn't be able to find them. So, for example, in Calgary, there's a a chain called Phil and Sebastian. Oh, I love Phil and Sebastian. I was just Phil's, there last yeah. week. Yeah, so Phil and Sebastian's fabulous. Um, uh, you know, very thoughtful in the way that they purchase coffee. They're very good in the way they roast coffee. Um, and there, the, let's see, monogram coffee is another mm -hmm. one really good. Uh, there, I mean, I could go on and on. I just picked two that just happened to be on the top of my mind. These are not endorsements. Yeah. Above. yeah. I um, get that. Well, we like to yeah. acknowledge people who do a good job, right? I mean, why not? Yeah. And you know, you know, I was in Montreal and there's tons of coffee, Montreal. I mean, there's so, there's so much, um, there's so many people who do a really good job. I just wish if I had endless time, I'd just rattle off like a ton. In fact, let me tell you a different way to tell you who I think on the smaller side is doing well. Yeah. There's a, a website, Sprudge, S-P-R-U-D-G-E. Okay. Right. Sprudge is a coffee, like a coffee website. And if you type in Sprudge and then a city you happen to be going to, they will probably have an article about your city 
and they may have like new cafes that popped up. It's, you know, they'll tell you a little bit about them, whatever. What's cool about that is that there's not really an endorsement in there for any of these cafes. They're all worth trying. And that's kind of the point of the sort of the, the final outpost of coffee is the cafe. And cafes really should be viewed as community centers and, and like staples, the fabric of the, of the uh, city you're in should be reflected in the cafe. And so, you know, I like to pick those ones that, um, that, that are, are, that serve that purpose. But at the same time, my wife's from Massachusetts. Okay. So when I go over, well, she's actually from Maine, but you know, lives in Massachusetts. Yeah, sometimes. And uh, when we go over there, you know, we can talk about all these expensive coffee places as well. But then at the end of the day, most people there do drink Dunkin' Donuts. That's what that's what people drink over there because that services a very large population of people in New England. And um, independent of whether I think they're buying high quality or not, or whether they are doing a good job or not, they're doing a good job because they got a ton of people buying a ton of coffee from them. And, uh, you know, if you view it that way, um, the more coffee they sell, the more jobs there are for the farmers. It goes back and, you know, it's a, it's a big supply chain. So um, to be honest, I'm on board with any of these companies as long as they're paying fair prices to both the employees here and the coffee people they're purchasing from. I love that. As a chemist, I feel like you would have an eyedropper um, with cream in it. <laughs> if you put cream in your coffee, three drops only, whatever. Uh, I got to tell you, I got to yeah, tell you I mean, a story about that. That would impact that. Yeah, I want to know. Okay, so so I have a coffee lab here at Oregon, right? And it's it is a terrible public. job, by the way. Chris. Uh, it's yeah. all yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's public, so you can anybody from the community can come in at any time and interact with my students and taste coffee for free. That's how it is. But the thing is, is that um, when we were setting up the lab, we had to first convince them that, that because we were working only with water, because we were brewing coffee, that we didn't really need the sort of safety training that you would have in a conventional lab where you might have dangerous solvents and all this stuff, because we would, of course, never use that. So we got away with that. But then we had a problem that we might be competing with cafes uh, on campus. And so we had to convince them that we weren't a cafe either. And so the way that we ended up having to do that was that we're not allowed in my lab to have milk because in America, they sell way more milk than they do coffee. And that's the sort of an old adage here that you buy, you're buying milk from Starbucks, not coffee. Right. Right. But in my lab, we can't have any because that's viewed as food according to the university, but coffee itself is not. So we get away, we sort of slip through this uh, interesting crack in, in, the, in the sort of the bylaws of, these, of the school. And so we're able to operate a public coffee lab that doesn't, can't do sugar, can't do milk, can't do all the adulterants. And so as a result, we study black coffee. Nice. Naked coffee only. I feel like I get that. Uh, here it was the food, uh, any food groups couldn't be sold at a liquor store and liquor couldn't be sold with food. So okay. you couldn't like orgeat syrup. You could get that, um, down in the States with a, a liquor store. You can't do that in Canada. Well, at least they've started to change it now, but yeah. So mm -hmm. I feel like, yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. This is cool stuff. I mean, I feel like we could have this conversation four or five times and still learn so much about it. I mean, the most important takeaway for me, Chris, is I really want people to realize that this is chemistry like this is how cool like listen to the excitement with chris's voice i know that with mel who's also a chemist you know she gets excited in her own way about her discipline and um this is what chemistry looks like so mm -hmm. regardless if you know people who are looking for a new career or young people that are looking to take something on this is the kind of cool careers you can get inside chemistry and if you're just a coffee drinker take your flavors mix your coffee and enjoy your day um, Chris, thanks so much for being here, man. I really appreciate this. Fascinating. Hey, my pleasure. Hope to have me back on here sometime soon. Yes, the invite is open. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Andrew C. Ferreira out of the cage and um, and here with us on the shift. And he is weird. Delightfully, though. Hello, Andrew. Uh -huh. How are you? <laughs> Good. Thank you very much. How happy is life whatever on the to West Ryan. Coast? It's two years for Ryan. A happy whatever to him. Oh, okay. thank you, sir. Of whatever it is. Good job. Yay, well whatever. Okay, well, we didn't bring you on here to be nice to Ryan. We brought you on here to talk about space. 
So um, a rock fell from the sky. Yep. And someone picked it up, and they yep. looked at it, and they yep. went, wait a momento. There's a couple of things here we ain't never seen before. What happened? Yeah, that's a pretty accurate characterization, kind of, maybe. Um, so basically, uh, University of Alberta uh, researchers, and University of Alberta actually does quite a bit of work in like mineralogy in terms of um, asteroids and meteorites, which is super neat. Uh, I had a vague idea of it, but uh, I did a little bit more reading into it, and uh, I did actually do quite a bit, which I thought was very fun. Because did you know that University of Alberta actually has a meteorite collection? Did not. Oh, now you do. And now everyone else does. Congratulations. Hmm. Um, now, what's happening here, Ed, I want to get ahead of this by saying, no, they did not fa- find, like, adamantium. I don't know what that like is. That. That's fine. Uh, they did okay. not find uh, crazy life-changing minerals. These are, for all intents and purposes, completely boring. Hmm. Um, but they're new. That makes them uh-huh. fun. Um, we so, got to work on your sales pitch. <laughs> hey, my sales pitch is that I don't care about the fun. I care about the science. Mm. I care about them facts. All right. Ooh, wow. On the radio, even. It's crazy. Them okay. factoids, if you will. Um, okay. So a 70-gram piece of a meteorite that landed in Somalia in Eastern Africa uh, was sent to the University of Alberta um, because they do good would. space study rock. Um, and so they managed to find uh, two new minerals. And the thing about minerals um, is that by and large, they're simple in the sense that they're generally made of the same stuff. Um, like these minerals are all made of things that you would find here uh, on Earth, for instance, right? It's all stuff like magnesium, like iron, like um, oxygen, like phosphorus. These are all things that we find on Earth. What's mm-hmm. different about them is that in space rocks, the ratio of these elements are completely different. Um, and this actually gives us a window into the early solar system because uh, it tells us what the stuff that made up the planets, the stuff that came out of the sun's ignition, uh, the stuff that was present in where we are now uh, after everything formed was made of. Um, and so the interesting thing here is, of course, the, the novelty. Uh, these two new um, uh, minerals uh, are called elilite and uh, oh, I had it here. Uh, Elkinstantonite. Um, now, El Ali from the El Aliite is where the meteor was actually found. So they named one mineral after the place where it was found in Somalia. Um, and Elkinstantonite was named um, actually after a very prominent uh, planetary scientist named Lindy uh, Elkinstanton. So Elkinstantonite is named after a person. Now, what I found super interesting about this story um isn't that we found these two new uh, minerals from this meteorite because new minerals are found relatively uh frequently i would say in terms of finding new things nowadays um in space rocks and space rock samples um but what's interesting is that the rock itself and there's an image on the uh, the global news article if you want to take a look at it has actually been just kind of chilling uh on the ground in somalia and so local camel herders uh, actually would stop at this rock and sharpen their tools, right? They would actually take pieces from it uh, and fasten them and shape them into tools uh, and other devices. And so it's interesting to me to think that this rock that fell out of the sky, there's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of pieces of it uh, in the tools of the nomads and the peoples who live in the area around which it fell. (laughs) Um, And you see this kind of a reverence for meteorite-driven tools, uh, and it you know stretches back to you know ancient Egypt, where a lot of holy and and, and items of sanctity were formed out of obsidian found um, in fallen meteorites. Uh, and I just think that that kind of socio-cultural bit is really interesting in terms of what we do with space rocks, because a lot of people me... will collect them, uh, a lot of people will study them, a lot of people will hide them, uh, yeah. and so on. Let me ask you a question about that. Do we know how long it's been sitting on the ground, or did I miss that part? Now, I let me see. I don't know if they know I exactly how long it's been sitting there. Yeah, I don't know if I know if I saw that it's been there. Yeah. I knew it's been there. Like, it wasn't like this super brand new, by the way, last night scenario. Yeah. But at the same time, um, that is fascinating if people knew about it, that, that it's been there for, for a minute. Now, the, the article doesn't actually um, say... 
when they believe that this actually has fallen. But given the context of the article and how people have gone there for generations yeah. to, you know, obtain metal and, 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 and ore for their tools and sharpen and all that stuff, um, I would imagine it's been there for, you know, at least 50, 100 years. Um, and it looks fairly worn down as well. It does, yeah. It looks weathered. So, it looks like it's been seen a, a the odd rainstorm or like on a riverbed. It's not um it's not jagged, it's not it's not ugly, it's kind of like a smooth, muddy looking clay. Like if you imagine, you know, wet clay looks, it kinda looks yep. like that. Um so to me, I would agree with you. It leads you to believe anyway that it's 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 not new. Yeah, and so I, I it's yeah, it says here the rock itself sat for at least several generations. Oh, so wow. we can say that that's at least 100 years, right? Um, if not, perhaps more. Now, one thing that I want to talk about in terms of these minerals is, and this leads to a fun little experiment you can do at home, um, but meteorites are generally magnetic. Um, and that's just because of the high iron content. Um, and the reason that they have this high iron content is that we believe that the vast majority, if not you know, all of the asteroids and meteorites and comets out there are essentially... Uh, failed planets, if you want to think of them like that. They are the weathered down cores of planets that never came to be. Um, and this is because as solar systems form, it's essentially a free-for-all. Uh, any rock has the potential to become a planet, uh, and rocks will eat bigger rocks, which will eat bigger rocks. And so as time goes on and kind of, you know, the, the competition is thinned out, um, those planets that, you know, are on the losing end of collisions or on get absorbed and then spit out by something... Uh, they end up forming a, the bulk majority of the asteroids, meteorites, and assorted space rocks out there. Um, and so when I say that this is a good way to look at the birth of our solar system, it's because these are the cores of planets that never were, the vast majority of them. Um, and so it also tells us a lot about planetary formation, right? It shows us how minerals, how elements, how molecules interacted with each other, how they formed, how they synthesized, how they broke apart. Uh, in the early, you know, rebellious teenage years of our solar system, some, you know, three-ish billion years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I find supremely interesting as well is, and this leads to your fun home experiment, is that because there's a lot of iron, these are magnetic. Now, the Earth every day, uh, as it plows through space, collects several tons, believe it or not, of space stuff, and it falls on the planet in random bits and pieces, and sometimes in really big rocks that glow green and Sometimes in other rocks, which fall through a BC woman's house uh, and narrowly mm. miss her sleeping head. That was um, yeah, um, that was a mission, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was. was yeah. I think it was golden. I, I think it was Eastern. Oh, BC. it might have been golden. Was, yeah. I think it was in Dam Rockies. Uh, kind of funny because it was a rock. which is ironic. Um, <laughs> mm. um, now, if it hasn't rained for a while, and this is really good to do, kind of at the end of the summer. Uh, if you've got like a strong neodymium magnet and you want to tape it to a stick or something, if you want to save yourself the trouble of bending over, if you've got a bad back or something, um, if you've got a driveway, uh, kind of run that magnet over every bit of your driveway. And if you pick up any rocks that are magnetic, they might very well be bits of space dust. Uh, because a lot of the stuff that would appear on top of your driveway would not be magnetic because most stuff that's magnetic is going to be under the ground in, you know, big veins of iron ore. So if you find magnetic bits uh, on your driveway, they could very well be space dust. Oh, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, there we go. It's Andrew C. Ferreira here. We're talking about space rocks and things falling to the Earth. Uh, the storyline, which is posted at shiftheads.ca, a meteorite that fell down in Africa was uh, brought to the University of Alberta for a little bit of research, and that research has revealed a couple of new minerals that have never seen been seen before on Earth. It's not a new one. So there's that story. Andrew is a space nerd. I'm Shane Hewitt. I um friends with Andrew. And the uh, I have a T-shirt. I know that guy. Uh, Andrew, the, You're part of the James Webb Club. James Webb Telescope is a um is is up in space taking photos, and took a couple of photos of a cloud. This is what happens yep. in space. They're like, ooh, it's a cloud, but really it just looks like a blurry marble. Um, what's the significance of these these photos? So the significance of these photos um, goes well beyond the fact that they're very blurry. Um, now, what, the cloud that we're talking about here is a cloud on Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Um, and Titan is a funky little world. It's one of my favorite worlds in the solar system. Uh, I think I like it more than Earth. Um, I don't know. Earth is kind of boring, you know. 
like big whoop we've got like rivers full of water oceans full of water <laughs> eh, whatever titan is cool <laughs> because all titan right. has all of the same stuff that we do in terms of there's a liquid that evaporates condenses falls collects snows except this liquid is not water it is natural gas oh it is methane it is ethane it is a lot of hydrocarbons it's liquid hydrocarbons um so that's your fun little fact about titan um but what's interesting about this and i see people on social media being like look at this james webb image of uh saturn's moon titan uh it's not a very good image in fact you could probably take and you can probably take better images by yourself with your own telescope of titan oh, really? um the the hubbub isn't the quality of the image or how good it looks um, what's interesting about the image, though, is that because of James Webb's suite of instrumentation, it can actually analyze the atmosphere on Titan much better than a ground-based telescope can. Um, now, right now, uh, on Titan, it's actually uh, summer. So, and yes, there are seasons on other worlds. Um, Did not know that either. <laughs> and in the image, you can actually see uh, one of Titan's uh, oceans. It's called the Kraken Mare, which is the best name for an ocean ever. Yeah. Um, or a and they're team. actually, or a hockey team. They're doing very well, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> surprising. And I just came off listening to the Canucks, and you know that's always a, a, an express route to sadness. Oh, um, uh, you get used to it after dealing with it your whole life. Um, so in the image, you actually see, and it's kind of hard to you got to use your imagination a little bit here. But at the top of the image, you can see this ocean, and it's flanked by two clouds. Um, and the fun thing here is that this observation was followed up by the Keck Observatory down here on Earth. Uh, and you've, the cloud's position has moved. So we're now at a point where we have yet another tool to quite literally track the weather on a moon from a planet hundreds of millions of kilometers away. All right, that's um, cool. Right? Um, so part of this is going to be studying uh, air circulation on Titan. Um, this is the only other moon in the solar system with a thick atmosphere, Right. Uh, now, the JWST is going to continue to look at Titan over the coming years. Um, I believe its next observations of Titan will be in mid-next year. Um, and this will actually be a wholesale look at Titan's atmosphere and surface. Uh, composition is the big thing. We want to know exactly what it's made out of. Um, and there's a bit of an anomaly in the image. And you notice that the southern half of Titan is very bright. Scientists have no idea why. Uh, and they're hoping that these new images that will come down from the JWST next year... Uh, will help to figure out why the moon's uh, southern half is very bright. Um, because that's just weird. Things in space don't generally glow for no reason. Um, mm. When things glow, we want to know why they glow, because that's kind of funky. Usually space is dark, cold, and has nothing in it. Um, so this is just one of those things where uh, the JWST, um, the beauty of it isn't in the images, really. The images are beautiful, of course. But the beauty is in what we can do with these images and the kind of science we can pull out of these images. Uh, because I've seen lots of astronomers kind of go on social media and be like, well, actually, this image is kind of bad from like a visual point. You know, you look at it and you can take a comparably good image through a, you know, a six or eight inch telescope uh, here on Earth, which is uh, very much something that any random person could own if they were a big enough nerd. Um, I want one. They're expensive. Um, so... You know, this plus actually, this is kind of, I'm tying a thread here uh, with the meteorite and the new minerals. Um, sometimes, and in fact, often science is very dull, right? Science is very almost pedestrian uh, at a glance. Uh, it's only when you kind of look into it more. It's only when you kind of dig into the data and read a little bit more about it that what makes it extraordinary and what makes it interesting is finally revealed. Um, of course, all of the beautiful images that the JWST has taken uh, are worth their money in terms of PR for, you know, funding space science. Um, but in the background, there are legions of, of tired uh, uh, grant money, um, you know, penny pinching scientists trying to make the most out of their telescope time, uh, really trying to figure out, you know, where we came from and where we're going. And I think that's that's, absolutely that's the real value. Well, I like that you bring that up because it's a good reminder that it's not all drama, right? And that, that, that's really kind of fascinating to keep in mind that science itself is study. That's what science is, is study. And so systematic study, actually, I believe by definition. So, you know, systematic study is like, ooh, right? Like we always, <laughs> in today's world, 
so many people have adopted, if not stolen, science as some sort of drama. And just to think that this is, uh, this is cool. Now, if only they could learn to predict weather on, um, on Earth and how leaving home early from work on the West Coast when a snowstorm's coming means the road plows, plows can't get <laughs> on the streets in time. I Maybe they can point a telescope hours. at uh, <laughs> at uh, at Earth for that one. Andrew C. Ferreira, thank you very much, buddy, for, for being a part of the shift. All the best. And uh, West Coast folks, hang in there. There's another shot of snow coming soon. So uh, be strong. <laughs> Crampons are good. Buy them. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.